There was a time when I could not stop thinking about food, whether I was in a dance class, working, at home, at school. It was like food consumed my mind. And it didn't make sense to me because at the time I was also studying to be a dietitian. So I was what you or maybe what diet culture would deem to be, and I quote, super healthy. In fact, at the time I was partaking in a lot of, and I quote, clean eating behaviors. So why was I so obsessed with food? Sweets and desserts were some of the biggest culprits. I truly felt like I could not trust myself around these foods. And what I didn't understand at the time, because I was studying to be a dietitian, was that I should be able to have these foods in my home and know how to eat them in a way that, you know, made sense, that fit into my, and I quote, clean eating lifestyle, but I couldn't. It felt like I had no willpower. It felt like, dare I say, I was addicted to some of these foods. Was I? Is food addiction or sugar addiction even a thing? It's one of the most controversial topics in the food and nutrition world. And today I want to chat a bit about why it's so controversial, clear up some of the confusion, dive into a little bit of the research so that you, if any of these thoughts and feelings feel relatable, can better learn how to navigate through them. Hi, I'm Rachel Fine. I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist, the founder of To The Point Nutrition and the creator of The Healthy Dancer. I am a former dancer turned dietitian here to help all of my fellow dancers learn how to use food in a way that best supports them, but not just physically for their dancing, also emotionally and mentally. Today I want to cover one of the most controversial topics in the food and nutrition world, and it's the question of food addiction or sugar addiction. We're going to cover both of them. I want you to understand a bit more about what we know from the research and the literature and how you can best navigate whether or not you feel like sugar or food addiction is relatable for you. If you feel like I once did, where I felt like I couldn't stop thinking about my next meal, stressing about what it would be and if it would fit into the lifestyle I was trying to abide to, if you downright feel like you cannot trust yourself around certain foods or perhaps you feel like you can't keep some foods at home, then I'm hoping you'll walk away from this video with some newfound knowledge. So let's dive into it. What's important to first understand is that we must lay the groundwork when it comes to identifying what our goals are with food and fueling our bodies. Now the word, and I quote, healthy is quite an arbitrary one in today's day and age. What's considered to be healthy for one dancer might look very different for what can be considered to be healthy for another dancer. And this is because so much goes into how we identify our own personal degree of health far beyond just the foods we eat and the movement or exercise we partake in. In fact, there are many social determinants of health that play a much larger role in how we define it. One's access to clinical care, access to qualified information and education, 
Access to nourishing and fresh foods. There are a plethora of socioeconomic and cultural factors that all play a role in how we define individual health. But because diet and wellness culture looms so large, especially within the dance world, we often see a lot of dancers experience what we call food obsessions. And the reason for this is twofold. First things first, for dancers, food plays a key role in performance. So when a dancer learns about the supposed performance benefits of certain nutrients and food, it can be super easy for us to hook onto that information and to even turn seemingly harmless information into very obsessive patterns around how we're fueling our bodies. But food obsession is also driven by the unfortunate fact that many dancers are currently underestimating their nutritional needs each day. So because of this, many dancers are subsequently under fueling themselves. Now, food is an obvious necessity to human life. We can't move throughout our day if our body doesn't have the tools it needs to burn for energy, aka calories from our food. So if dancers are under fueling, there's going to be many physiological consequences that happen in order for your body to communicate its need for an energy replenishment. What we see here, the drive of food cravings, and of course, the drive of food obsessions. And we know this from the research. Years ago, there was a very well-known study, the Minnesota Starvation Experiment. And what we found was when experiencing starvation, especially prolonged starvation, certain experiences are surfaced. Obsessive thoughts about food, overwhelming stress over when our next meal will be, anxiety if a meal or a snack doesn't go as planned, an overall lack of the ability to eat mindfully at a meal, so as an example, a lack in the ability to listen and honor fullness cues after a meal, and the experience of an all or nothing mindset around food. In other words, feeling like you have to get it all in now because you don't know when you're gonna have these foods again. It's also a product of food insecurity or the inaccessibility to food. Understand that thinking about food, thinking about a future meal, thinking about what you might order at a future meal is also very different from what we consider to be food obsessions. You want to take a look at your day-to-day. -day. How much of your day is spent thinking or obsessing about food? And how is that negatively impacting other aspects of your life, such as your time spent in the studio, or maybe your ability to enjoy meals or snacks with others? The more these thoughts are impacting other realms of your daily living, then the more of a sign that you might be experiencing food obsessions. So how can a dancer become obsessed with food? What causes this preoccupation with food? Sometimes it can start as early as childhood. So if you've experienced a parent or a guardian who exemplifies a lot of control over how much you're eating at your meals, even from your earliest days, then your chances of experiencing that preoccupation with food are higher. 
We also know that social media feeds like Instagram increase our risk of developing disordered eating, specifically eating habits like orthorexia or the obsession with wanting to eat very healthfully. Now, restrictive eating or food restrictions, these can be intentional, such as with dieting behaviors, but they can also be experienced unintentionally for dancers. And this is a product of super busy and super active schedules. Many dancers experience a diminished sense of hunger while they're navigating an extra busy day or an extra intense day when it comes to their dancing. We often see this with competition seasons, touring, and even performance seasons. The bottom line, underfueling ultimately leads to overthinking. And this is especially notable during disordered eating or restrictive eating patterns, when you're trying to abide by restrictive eating rules. What's most common, what I tend to see amongst the dancers I work with is that desire to want to abide by clean eating behaviors. And don't forget, this is what I experienced on a personal level when I was dancing full time. It's human nature to want what we think we cannot eat. So dieting, restrictive eating, trying to abide by clean eating lifestyles, all of this imposes limitations on our food intake. And of course, since diet culture, the culture at large and within the dance world, unfortunately normalizes and even glorifies restrictive eating, we see food obsessions like orthorexia very common amongst dancers. So when does it potentially cross over into this idea of addiction? Can we actually be addicted to food? So I just laid the groundwork for the consequences of underfueling and how underfueling drives overthinking around food. When does it cross over into potentially being an addiction? First and foremost, understand that addiction is defined by a compulsive physiological need. When one feels addicted to food or sugar, it's a very intense feeling, an intense craving for these foods. And these feelings usually come alongside feelings of being very out of control around these very foods. And usually that's of course what drives that distrust between you and your food. But what does the research actually say? Can we be addicted to food or sugar? Food addiction research, it's truly in its infancy. And the truth is any research that has been done on humans is largely inconclusive. The bottom line, there is no evidence that supports food or sugar has the same pharmacological effect on the brain as a drug does. Why is food addiction research so confusing? Well, the first thing comes down to terminology. There is no formal terminology surrounding food or sugar addiction. And while one might describe feelings of food addiction as being very compulsive around food, the lack of a consistent definition on how we define food or sugar addiction makes it really hard for us to actually draw consistent conclusions in the research. For example, if one study is talking about sugar addiction and studying dessert as a whole, but another study is talking about sugar addiction and studying specific sugars like fructose, the sugar found in fruit, or sucrose, regular table sugar, you need to understand that it's hard for us to compare these results because we're talking about two different things. 
Also, most research surrounding food or sugar addiction doesn't really exemplify true human behavior. A largely referenced article about sugar addiction, and when I say largely referenced, that essentially means that most things that you see on the internet that are citing the possibility for us to be addicted on food or sugar was, and wait, performed on rats. So while these kinds of studies can spark interest and essentially act as clickbait in the media, results have yet to be successfully replicated in humans. And now here's one of the biggest challenges of food and sugar addiction research. There are many confounding variables. So what essentially this means is that when we are studying, for example, the potential for rats to become addicted to sugar, there's other factors within these rats' lives in the study that are also potentially driving the behaviors exemplified. Let me break this down a little bit. In the research study that I'm referencing, and you can read more about it on my blog post, the study fails to acknowledge that the rats who eventually exhibit addictive-like behaviors followed intermittent access to sugar prior to the study. In other words, their access to sugar, and for that matter, calories, was severely limited and restricted prior to obtaining the sugary feed that they were given during the study. So the question becomes, are these rats exemplifying addictive-like behaviors because of the sugar, or is this potentially a result of the intermittent and limited access to the sugar prior to the study? Something that I spoke about earlier in this chat was that limited access to food and calories for that matter drive food obsessions, drive cravings, drive feelings of being out of control around food, very addictive-like behaviors. So understand that big headlines suggesting food addiction or sugar addiction are quite misleading. Now I want you to consider this fact. Over 75% of women exemplify disordered eating behaviors. So even if such studies are replicated in humans, we need to again further look back at the potential for restrictive eating and disordered eating as being confounding variables that are going to challenge the research results. And the final reason why food addiction studies or sugar addiction studies are so limited is the mere fact that they dismiss the cultural value of food. So we know from the research that similar to addictive substances like drugs, the mere act of eating food demonstrates similar neural response pathways in our brain. In other words, eating food promotes the release of dopamine, that feel-good hormone. And dopamine happens to be the main neurotransmitter involved with addictive behaviors. But you need to understand that food is meant to be a rewarding experience for humans because it's meant to help us survive. This is purely biological and it supports the continuation of our species. And just a fun fact, in regard to those neural pathways, we see other behaviors that nobody would ever suggest to be addictive trigger the same neural pathways, specifically laughing and listening to music. Now, you wouldn't suggest that you're addicted to laughing or listening to music, right? 
These behaviors are not pathological and neither is eating. Here's what we know. Restriction and restraint create a heightened desire. Binge-like behaviors and what you might feel, which by the way is a very valid feeling, like you are overeating at mealtimes, might very well be a response to your body making up for a calorie deficit. And the key takeaway is that any research suggesting an addiction to food or an addiction to sugar is inconclusive and quite limited, especially in regard to its study design and fundamental framework. Experiencing what we call to be that last supper mentality, that all or nothing mindset around food, like you need to get it in now because starting tomorrow, you're not gonna let yourself get it in again. That's what often drives those feelings of food addiction. So consider whether or not the dieting mentality or restrictive mentality is a potential factor in the experience that you might be having around feeling addicted to foods or sugar. And remember, these feelings are extremely valid. And if you're struggling to navigate through them, then it's highly encouraged you reach out to licensed professionals, a licensed registered dietitian nutritionist, specifically one who is further trained in working with disordered eating, eating disorders, and even intuitive eating, alongside the work of a licensed mental health professional. And a few tips to try to navigate and alleviate some of the obsessive behaviors that you might feel around food, First and foremost, you wanna make sure you're getting in enough throughout the day. This often looks like getting in multiple meals and snacks. And as I mentioned earlier, most dancers underestimate their needs. So working alongside a registered dietitian nutritionist is highly encouraged to better assess whether or not you're meeting that baseline. Next up is the practice of food neutrality. This is going to alleviate that good and bad mindset that you might be having around food, that dieting mentality that might be driving that all or nothing mindset around the foods that you're eating or the foods that you're feeling like you can't trust yourself around. And then last is the idea of unconditional permission. This is one of the hardest tools that I utilize with the dancers I work with, but I can assure you that down the road, it truly does support them and their behaviors when it comes to meal and snack times. Giving oneself permission to have access to foods, to enough foods, to reliable meals and snacks helps us to practice what we call food habituation. From a general perspective, food habituation is the adaptation to a repeated experience. When you are repeatedly exposed to food or any one type of food, that desire for that food will eventually diminish. And alongside this, you begin to build trust that you'll have access to this food again in the future. So that need to get it all in now alleviates. But understand that the tool of food habituation, it's not meant to take away the novelty and the happiness or the excitement around food. We just want to make sure that a restrictive mindset is not holding you back from experiencing eating in general or one specific food in a way that leaves you feeling good physically, mentally, and emotionally. As you're doing this work, I often encourage that dancers build some journaling practices. And in my program, The Healthy Dancer, this is essentially what we do on a weekly and monthly basis. I give dancers tons of prompts to work through as they're building their skills in food habituation, unconditional permission, food neutrality, just to name a few. At the end of the day, the goal is to have the ability to eat foods in a way that leaves us feeling 
great, or at best, even just neutral. Instead of entering that mindset of scarcity or that mindset like we have to get this all in now because starting tomorrow, I'm never gonna let myself eat it again. That's what doesn't support us in the long run. I hope you're walking away from this chat with some newfound knowledge to help to unravel the experiences behind feelings of food addiction and even sugar addiction. But if you have any questions on either of these topics, I highly encourage that you reach out to me. I'm a licensed registered dietitian nutritionist and we can further chat about ways that can help to support you as you navigate your overall relationship with food. Until next time, I'll talk to you soon. Mm -hmm.